how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast interview series, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, chefs, and various other types of creatives as we bridge the gap between creativity and productivity. Here we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and lessons that help promote a successful creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. Make sure to also check out Freelancer Class, where you can learn how to become a freelancer full-time or part-time. The online course will teach you how to make money online as a writer, marketer, designer, virtual assistant, accountant, or salesperson. Stay tuned after the show to learn how to get access for free to this $99 valued freelancer course, along with some other free items on our website, creativeprinciples.live. Jonathan Abel and Glenn Berger are the minds behind the hit animated trilogy Kung Fu Panda, with a cast including Jack Black, Brian Cranston, Dustin Hoffman, Angelina Jolie, J.K. Simmons, Jackie Chan, Seth Rogen, Lucy Liu, Kate Hudson, and many more. The series has become a staple in the family films genre. In the third installment, Poe must face two epic threats, one supernatural and one that deals with his long-lost family and a kingdom of pandas. Underneath the colorful animations and intense fight scenes, the heart of the film deals with some tough issues, touching on feelings of exclusion, loss, and even what it's like when someone new enters the family. Abel and Berger discuss what television taught them about character-based stories, the most difficult step in the writing process, and how to write for a panda that sounds like Jack Black. They've also worked on Trolls, the Spongebob movies, and King of the Hill. In addition to the audio format of this interview, the print interview is available on Creative Screenwriting's website. And, uh, John and I uh, were led into screenwriting by hating the same job. We met at a management consulting firm in Boston right out of college. And uh, I think on day one, I knew it was not the place for me. Day two, I met John, and the rest is history. Uh, by the way, the rest is history. John, why don't you take over the rest of the history? Oh, no, sorry, the history. <laughs> So, so at uh, while at consulting firm, uh, I guess we didn't know that there were magazines like Creative Screenwriting, or perhaps it didn't exist, and there was really nothing out there to tell you that you could be a screenwriter, how to become a screenwriter, and we actually stumbled across a spec script on a coworker's desk that his friend from college had written, and we just asked what a spec script was, and were explain to us that it's a sample you write for a sitcom that is that's on the air but you're just trying to get hired on staff so from that that sitcoms actually had staff just the very basic stuff we had no idea about and we thought it kind of sounded both definitely sounded better than what we were doing at the time and we just started writing nights and on weekends and then eventually sending our stuff to people in LA to read and got enough encouragement that you skipped the part where you drove the U-Haul into a parked car in the first five still, minutes of the drive. I'm still not willing to put that in my 
That's actually true. By the way, so it occurred to me. Is there a of limitations on, on that? <laughs> Probably. It was my parked car, and I forgave him. Um, the the when I hearing you say that, it occurs to me only now, all these years later, how crazy it was that there was a Seinfeld spec on the desk of a management consultant's office in Boston <laughs> at all. But right. but to think that literally, literally that spec, the guy who wrote that spec, ended up on Seinfeld a few years later. Like well, what? How many Seinfeld specs do you see, and how many of them ever get to write on Seinfeld? It was crazy. <laughs> that was Andy Robin, by the way. Andy Robin. Hi, Andy. You had no idea that you actually were the cause of all this. Um, it looks like you guys actually kind of got, or at least on IMDb, got started in, in television shows. And, and what was that like, and how did yeah. you kind of make the transition into film and animation and that kind of thing? Uh, we, we got really lucky. I'll skip the first couple of years of, of, of being on um, not-so-great shows that didn't last very long because that's, you know, the, that's, that's, that's what the big break – you keep waiting for the big break, and you realize your big break is a series of tiny little breaks of shows that disappear quickly. Right. But we got um, – one of those bad jobs introduced us to uh, a writing team who gave us the best advice we had ever gotten at, until that time, which was uh, most jobs – are terrible. Most TV shows get canceled. Um, so if you ever find yourself lucky enough to be on a show that's both creatively good and commercially successful, stay there as long as you can because they're very rare. And the temptation for too many people is you luck into a – like we knew people who got – they were on the first season of Friends, and by season two or three they were like, oh, I'm going to parlay that into my own development deal and start writing pilots and stuff like that. And we've seen that go – Horribly wrong, I guess it could have gone horribly right, but, but we'd seen it go wrong enough that by the time we, we lucked into a show like King of the Hill, we mm-hmm. were there from the pilot from the pilot through season, was it season six? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we, we just stayed and stayed and stayed. And we would have stayed forever, except for we both had, um, I think we both had the same early night off from work and had uh, our first children the same year. And having uh, having babies and working in TV is really I don't know how people do it because well on a show like King of the Hill where we you know they were all nighters it felt like still being in college which was fun when you're in your twenties but as soon as we had kids we started thinking about um, writing for film and and realizing that King of the Hill had taught us we'd spent six years doing three act structure no laugh track kind of writing which which led to which was more we were more prepared to write film than we were to write sitcoms. At the time, sitcoms were television comedy was not was not Modern Family and that kind of show. It was more still multi-camera, laugh-tracky kind of shows, and we felt not very um, not very prepared to write that or very creatively interested in writing that. And right. and decided that our skills were better suited for film, and that's we started making the transition. I think it's to take it back. Oh, this is John, by the way, my boy. When we were first starting out, the idea of sitcoms was that there's a staff, it's only 45 pages. It seems very manageable, what you have to do. It was fairly, it was kind of formulaic, not in a bad way, in that you know what genre is, you understand the structure of the piece. And I think it was a good place for us to start and learn by doing, learning story structure, learning scene structure, writing jokes, 
and then learning if I, I, can I, can I jump in uh, the, the learning yeah. learning uh, collaboration learning rewriting stuff that that apparently is in short enough supply um, that when we have studio jobs in, in movie work uh, we're, we're, we're often complimented on wow you guys are what well, someone recently referred to us as relentless and I think he meant it in a good way that we were the the the, the TV model of it could always be better, keep rewriting it, the jokes can be better, the story can be clearer. Um, any, I don't care where the idea comes from. If it's a good idea, I'll put it in because it's like the best idea wins. That's, that's all stuff we learned on King of the Hill. And mm-hmm. I'm eternally grateful for having that kind of educational experience early in our career. Sorry, John. Sorry I can't even remember where I, where I was going to go. You see, well, you were transitioning away from what we learned. Yeah, so well, we learned all that on sitcoms, but ultimately the what we learned on King of the Hill, the desire to tell character-based stories with deeper emotion is something that's really better explored in features. And then the fact that we wound up in animated features is more of a fluke than an intention or anything we were able to do because of anything we had learned about animation from King of the Hill. That was just, we'd been doing features, we'd been doing a lot of rewrite things that either were getting made, but not with our names on them, or things we were really proud of that were about to go, but for one reason or another, we're getting, getting the green light. And then we were asked if we wanted to work on Kung Fu Panda, and it had a release date, and had Jack Black, and had a good crew behind it, and we, we, uh, we signed on, and that was the I think a two-year, two-and-a-half-year process of doing that film, and and, uh, and we're still at it. Okay. How do you go, like, the main character, Jack Black character, Poe, was such like an, an, an everyman who has to rise to the occasion. How do you go about writing such an affectionate character? Such a what? I'm sorry, such a what character? Uh, affectionate, like What's for the, the audience. Yeah. Affectionate. We, uh... We certainly weren't – a question we got asked whenever we were in China or interviewed by someone in China, how do you write for a panda? <laughs> <laughs> I, which, I, I, which is weird because we've never thought of him as a panda. He's, he is Jack Black. He is right. uh, a, a, a extremely – he's this wonderfully charming combination of uh, enthusiastic and vulnerable, and that's, that's the key. Like what's the human? What's the relatable human element of that character? And then when you find that, it's the real gift is that Jack brought so much of himself, which is he's, you know, uh, not in the greatest physical condition, although he always surprises me with how high he can kick and how high he can jump. But right. uh, he's, he's, not the, he's not the usual, the, the guy you think of when you think um, act like mo- movie star slash uh, Grammy-winning musician. But, but he, his sheer passion and, and joy has made him a success in film and music. And, and, and so that's like one side of Poe, which is I have a dream and I'm not going to let anything get in the way of my dream. But then the other half of that is just because Jack has succeeded uh, doesn't mean he's not a human with vulnerabilities and, you know, and fears and insecurities. And that's the other side of Poe, which is once you get past that first movie and he's succeeded to beyond his wildest dreams, how do you keep him a character that can justify more than one movie, and then the secret is that no matter what success you might achieve in life, for any of us, you're still at, at heart a person who has insecurities and vulnerabilities, and 
and no amount of fame or money or, or dragon scrolls uh, can, can change that. Okay. I have nothing to add, Okay. okay. I want I want us to be uh, I want us to be a lot of long term writing partnerships. They, they the interviews always say they finish each other's sentences. I want I wanted to say that uh, John and Glenn uh, we stop each other's sentences. Okay. Okay. Um, can you guys elaborate on some of the research involved? Some of there's a lot of um, Eastern philosophies in these films. A lot of yoga classes. Um, yeah, I wish we could say that we we went deep into uh, into the literature and all that, but it's amazing how much of it does come from yoga class, from coffee mugs, coffee mugs, uh, from the internet, from uh, and I, Glenn was an East Asian studies major, so he has he actually does have a bit of an academic background, but the rest is just sort of our own stuff we bring to it, and just pull from from everywhere. Well, although although I will I will say um, that that I'm whatever. There's some great great lines in the in the first two movies, and yes, yeah, so, so one of them, the history mystery present. That's why it's a gift. That that's the John uh, got that from a yoga class, which is awesome. Like again, as I said earlier, who who cares where the great material comes from? If you you know, you have to recognize that it's good and remember to use it, so that's great. But I'm really proud, if I could say this, of the two of us. In this third movie, um, a lot of the Uguay kind of stuff, uh, that's stuff we just we just, just manufactured, you know, we, we, we thought of instead of found, and that's mm-hmm. kind of neat. I, I wonder if it's the nature of having done these movies for now 10 years that we've somehow internalized some of this uh, Eastern philosophy uh, to the extent that we can actually manufacture the the, the faux wisdom. Well, I, or or you can say that Uwe represents the best part of all of us who remain calm and always knows exactly what to say in the situation. Even if it takes us four that? years to come up to come up with one of his answers. <laughs> <laughs> whereas whereas Mr. Ping, the Jewish mother, those lines come way too easy for the two Jewish boys from the East Coast that we are. You guys mentioned the yoga. Are there there any other type of, like, you know, rituals to your writing or your mornings? Do you do any meditation, that kind of thing? And then how do you start your day when you get down on the writing? But this is John. I I do need to be clear that that may have been the last time I went to a yoga class. I'm not (laughs) a daily practitioner. (laughs) You got what you needed out of it, John. You you actually walked out in the middle of the class saying, I got the line. I got the line. I do, I do think that that yoga class it was probably fifteen or more years ago. Uh, so I I think we are our our ritual is really after all these years of writing is we just sit down and start writing and don't require uh, any sort of I guess rituals for for lack of a better word we don't have to have be facing a certain way or be in a certain room. We one of us could be in a coffee shop calling someone. One of us could be on a plane. Part of although uh, although one could argue, John, that like for a lot of a lot of solo writers have a ritual to put them in that frame of mind, that creative frame of mind, and and one could argue that just the mere fact of seeing each other or talking to each other is that thing for because especially I we live in different cities now. Um, I moved to Northern California a few years ago. And now our, our our work experience is is largely 
over Skype, and we don't even put the video up. So, and so I don't see John in my day to day in my day to day life. Just the very fact of hearing his voice is officially that workday has started. So, in a weird way, I think hearing you, John, is is that ritual that says we we start work. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a real bummer. I used to we used to like each other. Now he's just that. Yeah, and I turn him off on Friday afternoon, and then we're done for the week. But I do remember when we we first moved out here, the idea would be, oh, I have an idea, and it's 10 at night, and let's just start writing it. And then eventually you you learn to work the hours you have to work. And sitcoms kind of train you in that. Here you are, it's 11 a.m., and you're ready to start writing, or it's 11 p.m., and you need to be writing. When it's time to write, right. And when it's time to be funny, you have to be funny, regardless of what else is happening to you in your day, in your life, or how tired you are, or how frustrated you are. Um, can you elaborate a little bit more on the like logistics? Do you use a certain type of software and go back and forth, or do you write a beat, do you write a beat, that kind of thing, or how does that work? Wait, wait, can I, can I take this one, John, because I'm, I'm really nerding out right now don't, on a new piece don't, of don't, software. Don't, don't need you don't need to plug. It's so, but it's so good. It's so good. We, I'm gonna do it. We, we have, uh, we have. I have it on my license yet. They, they end up hating. You will, you will. By the time this comes out, well, this is this is real. This is the this is nuts and bolts uh, screenwriting. We've uh, so we've been a writing partnership our entire career, and the first chunk of it, we were literally across the desk from each other. Only one of us at a, at, a, at the keyboard at a time. We'd alternate. Sometimes we'd alternate every day. Now we kind of alternate um, by project. And then, but you know, if there's someone, if there's an issue going on, like John came back from the eye doctor the other day and couldn't type. So even though it was his time to type, I typed whatever. Uh, and yeah. Final Draft for a, a, a while had something called Collaborator. Or maybe they still do, but it would never really worked. Um, and then I found this product called Writer Duet which was explicitly designed from the ground up to, to enable writing teams to collaborate seamlessly. And, and after our, uh, we, we used uh, Final Draft for everything we've ever done because we just finished, the Panda 3 just came out, and uh, having the, the, the downtime right now, uh, things aren't quite so busy, so I had the time to research uh, new writing software. And this is, this is going to be the next big thing for our partnership. I think it's going to take us into the, into the next century. Cool. Very cool. <laughs> um, oh, but wait, I'm sorry. But the, actually, to answer your real question, also we we uh, we write every scene together. What we'll usually do is, when it comes to turning an outline into a first draft, we'll divide that in half usually, just so neither one of us has to look at the blank page of a whole script. But but literally, it's a matter of like take two days. And, and try to dash out, turn that detailed outline, which may be a 15-page outline, try to turn that into a 100-plus page, really, really rough draft. And then from then on out, it's every page we're looking at together and going over together. We've, we, we have friends who are teams who split it up. You take that scene, I'll take that scene, and then we'll swap and stuff. And it just never worked out for us. Right. There's, a, there's also the, the trick of everyone knows facing the blank screen is the challenge. So if you can spend the time just quickly just getting a down and dirty, rough, awful scene written, but at least has people entering and exiting and the right characters are in it, 
then at least when you finally approach the scene, you feel you kind of trick yourself that it's a rewrite you're doing and it exists. You're just trying to make it better now. And so that's one, one trick we'll do. Just get it down, get the ugliest version of everything, and then start making it better and better as you work through it. Okay. What do you guys find to be the most difficult step in the writing process? Uh, in the interviews at the end. Okay. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a, it's, we'd love to do we'd love to do anything other than the actual having to write. I think, as John put it, it's a maybe it's a toss up between um, the, the the blank page, the very very first step, or maybe because of the projects we do take some sometimes take three to four years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's the one thousand thirty second time we're writing the same joke that could get a little uh, as much as we pride ourselves on being um, relentless and open to any day makes it better. There comes a time when when you've lost track of how many times you've written a given scene and are pretty sure that maybe the best version of that joke was a year and a half ago and you know eighty three drafts ago. So that's that's the challenge keeping that kind of uh, enthusiasm alive for the many, many years that some of these movies take. Okay. Yeah, I also think scripts are scripts are long and they take a long time to write and it's hard to think about writing a hundred and ten pages when you're first starting. And it's a matter of just doing your bit every day and sitting down and writing and even if it's not good, just trying to put something down and move on. And that's another thing we finally learned is that we could argue over a theme and spend an entire day debating a couple lines in it. And eventually we realized that if we just put down both ways to go, we could do this, we could do this and move on. By the time we get back to that scene, which could be two weeks later, a month later, usually the problem has solved itself or you look at it and say, oh, the answer is obvious. Or you can't even remember who's, idea was which, mm-hmm. or we switch and we now argue the opposite end. But either way, there's something about uh, just keeping the process moving, just keep writing and keep going forward that makes you hope that the, the problems will iron themselves out, or you'll be able to come back to it clear with a clearer eye and iron it out. When you guys first started writing the original Kung Fu Panda, did you have ideas for a trilogy? We know that Jeffrey Katzenberg had ideas for, not ideas specifically, but ideas that there'd be uh, maybe six of them. I think that's been quoted in the in the press. Uh, but there's never anything spe- uh, specific, and and mostly because it's so much work doing one of these, and everyone was spending all their creative energy trying to make the first as good as possible. And you'd never, ever want to presume that it was going to be a success to the extent that you'd get a chance to do a sequel. I mean, you hope. And you dream. But I don't I, but think I think we've ever been on a movie where at some point people have to think, oh, that'd be good. That, 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 that could be the sequel right there. So every yeah. single movie, someone is thinking maybe there could be a second or a third or an eighth because that's, that's the, the way the system is right now, and that's, that's the business. So I think Well, isn't it, isn't it also oh. the, a function of if you, have a good, if you have a good main character who is as 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 human in his emotional dimension or her, her emotional dimension as possible, there's 
you quickly get to the point where, oh, there's, there's other stories you can tell with that person. So we may not have had the idea of a trilogy as we were working on the first, but when pressed to come up with the next and then the next, you, it wasn't that much of a, of a reach to, to come up with something more to have to deal with. Is there anything you wish you had known either before, let's say back in before Kung Fu or before even King of the Hill, or any advice you'd like to pass on to future writers? Well, uh, let's, uh, let's pay that other that earlier advice. Uh, if you ever on a good, uh, you ever get a chance to work with good people on good material that also happens to be commercially successful, never take it for granted. Stay with those people as long as possible. What was it? What's the line, John? There's um, the agent who said, "You can have good material. Good, you can work with good people. You can work on good material, or you can make money. Choose, choose two at most. Like you're very lucky if you get." One of those, let alone two, and never, never expect three. So it's worth a pay cut to work with good people on good material. It, it costs a lot of – you need a lot of extra money if you're going to work with jerks or the material is, <laughs> is horrible. That's, that's my advice. That's the grizzled, old, well, cynical advice. How about the other, the other advice? I, I would say that we've met many aspiring writers who don't really like to write. And I think this is a very difficult profession for people who don't, at the <laughs> beginning of the day, like to sit down at their board and write a scene or write a line or write a joke or write a script. And it, and part of that is just having the ability to sit down day in and day out and actually, actually do it. And I think the other is then the willingness to hear people's opinions of your work and understand that you – have to when you write something you want it to be great and you usually have to convince yourself it's great in order just to get through the writing of it but ultimately anything can be better and then you're going to turn it into someone who's going to give you notes and the hardest thing is to be able to honestly accept that criticism and then try to make your material better rather than saying well i just disagree with that person it's fine and i'm going to send it to other people or send it to agents or send it to producers can I elaborate on that? Because that actually came up fairly recently. Um, we were so fortunate when we first started that, you know, a lot of really nice people gave us a lot of great help early, and we've we've always tried to pay that forward. And, and or we go to, like, a film festival or meet an aspiring writer who asks us to read something. We always try to, to read it. But the, the flip side of that and the thing that will separate any of your readers who are aspiring writers um, whoever get a chance to have a working writer read or, or an agent or a producer or a director read material is almost as important as the quality of the material. Like, first of all, make sure the thing you're sending is as good as it can be before you send it. But then secondly, when I give notes to an aspiring writer, that's, that's almost part of the audition as well. How do they take the notes? As John said, are they defensive? Are they open? And the, the best experience I've ever had with, a, with an aspiring writer who I met at a film festival is when he sent me his script and I read it and the writing was good, but the script was 170 pages long. And I called him with notes saying, I only have one note on your 170 page script. It's got to be 120 max. Your act one break has to be on page. You know, the, the, the specific thing that happens has to be page 40 at the latest. And that's it. You figure it out. And three weeks later, he sent it back to me and it, uh, he, he completely reworked the script no ego, you know, accepted the, the fact that there are very few scripts that are 170 pages that ever get made. 
I just had the so when when the when the script came in shorter and great, when I called up my agent and said, "You've got to sign this guy because not only is the writing great, but just working with him was, was so fantastic. He was such a diligent, hardworking, ego-free person that you can send him out on meetings and never worry about being embarrassed. He's like a there's the art side of it, which is do you have what it takes? Are you a good writer? And then there's the business side. Are you are you going to be a pleasure to work with? And that's that's an important. That's the part that no one really talked to us about in the early days. You, you just have to be the kind of person that people don't mind working with for years, years and years. He's complimenting him on his rant, please. <laughs> okay. He's like the record shop approved. <laughs> um, are there any cinematic influences based in the within the Kung Fu Panda world that you guys have used, like in actual Kung Fu movies or just favorite films? Yeah, you want to take that, John? Uh, yeah, sure. Well, tonally, we were... I remember when we first started, we were all blown away by Kung Fu Hustle, which was a real, both comedically out there in terms of its tone, but also really mythic and wasn't a parody. And that was the most important thing at the beginning of Kung Fu Panda, was trying to figure out, are, is this a parody? Is this, are, are we poking fun at it and realizing that it, we really wanted to be a sincere Kung Fu movie with comedy, but still following the traditions of Kung Fu movies. So we what, we must have watched tons of Kung Fu movies. Uh, uh, Crouching Tiger, House of Flying Daggers. Glenn and I watched a lot of the Tony Jaw stuff, so Ong Bak. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Drunken, Drunken Master was gr- good, because that's a great example of how can you be both funny and take the, you know, have entertaining action sequences, good fighting, but also be funny in the doing? Because a lot of the challenge of an action sequence in a Kung Fu Panda movie is making it cool fighting, realistic enough fighting, but also entertaining. And, you know, the main character, Jackie Chan, was brilliant about making, he clearly knows how to fight, but also knows how to make you laugh. And, and it's a delicate balance. And that's, that was a great model. And then to get to actually work with the guy in the movies, too, is amazing. Yeah, I love that he's in the movies. That's that's so cool. Um, he plays, does, yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, he plays the voice of Poe's father in the Mandarin version of the movie in China, which is really cool. That's funny. Um, I did hear, are you guys familiar with Eric Weinstein? I heard him on a Tim Ferriss podcast. I, well, <laughs> uh, yes. Have you heard I, um, I've, become, I've, I've become friends with him. As I heard the podcast uh-huh. um, driving to the airport. So it was like a perfect drive from my house to Oakland Airport. On the plane, I I don't do any social media. I just I just don't. I'm an yeah. electronic hermit. And I joined Twitter to say hi to him and thank him because what an amazing thoughtful analysis. And since then, we've we've actually hung out. Okay. He lives up in San Francisco. I live north of San Francisco. We've become friends, and uh, I continue to maintain that his version of the first movie is. Is uh, smarter than what we what we wrote, and I uh, wish we could take credit for it, but we can't. So God knows if we're if there's going to be a fourth movie, uh, we'll be checking in with him before we write it. <laughs> okay, As, I want to touch on that. I thought that was so interesting. It's very cool. I liked his analysis of everything. Yeah, it was amazing. Oh, by the way, wait, hold uh, on. Our first our first date. This is crazy. This is going to close the loop. Uh, so I listened to him on the podcast. I met him over Twitter. The first time I ever met him in person, his family and my family met halfway between our houses and saw Kung Fu Panda 3 together. <laughs> That's awesome. Do you want that in print, Glenn? 
<laughs> well, yeah, that's that, and that. Exactly. By the way, that offer that offer is open to any member of the movie going uh, public. Uh, say something nice about a film, and I'll go watch it with you and your family. <laughs> that's how that's how needy I am, apparently. Okay. Thank you so much for tuning into the show. Before you leave, don't forget to sign up for the weekly newsletter. We also get free access to the freelancer course, Master the Freelancer Mindset. This system will teach you exactly how to find clients online, which includes step one, the psychology of the mindset. Step two, how to create a killer profile. And step three, how to find quality clients. This online course is valued at $99. It can be yours for free. In addition to the free course, you'll get access to the ebook, How Hollywood Screenwriters Annihilate Writer's Block. This contains advice from Aaron Sorkin, Carrie Fukunaga, and William Monahan. You can find all of this and more on creativeprinciples.live. Visit the website for new interviews, articles, and the daily blog. That's creativeprinciples.live.